act of seditious treason. Now here are the facts of this case. We doubt our institutions and we doubt the law. I never thought of using. Oh, so you did know he had a gun. On this side. Oh, what was that word? On that side. Uh, what word? Did you say Utes? Yeah, two Utes. What is a Ute? Hello and welcome to episode two of This Side of the Law. I'm Connor Gallagher. On this podcast, we're going to take a fresh look at the law in Ireland. If you haven't heard our first episode, you can check it out on the This Side of the Law SoundCloud page. That was an interview with veteran journalist and social campaigner Nell McCafferty, who spoke to us about reporting from the chaos of the district court in the 1970s. This week, we're going in a different direction. A 37-year-old woman who's serving life for the murder of one man has today been jailed for life for the murder of a second man. Mr Justice Paul Carney sentenced Catherine O'Connor to the mandatory term of life in prison. A 44-year-old man has been jailed for life for murdering his two sons. Verdict, she said, OK, Your Honour, as Mr Justice Garrett Sheehan jailed her for life. Tonight he begins two life sentences. But to four concurrent life sentences. Handing down the sentence, Mr Justice Tony Hunt said a dangerous man was now out of the way. Life sentences. The term itself is nearly meaningless. It would be more accurate to call them fairly long but entirely unpredictable sentences. In Ireland, we are nearly unique in the world in how we sentence our most serious criminals. Our life sentences are imposed automatically for murder. Yet when someone is sentenced, no one, not even the judge, knows how long that person will spend in prison. It could be 60 years, 40 years, 20 years, 10 years, or it could even be 7 years, although that's very unlikely. And when the time does come to make a decision on whether to release someone, things get even fuzzier. In this episode, we're going to explore this regime. And to help us... Okay. My name is Jeremy Griffin. I'm a lecturer in law at NUI Galway. And my area of research is the release of life sentence prisoners. Diarmid has done some pretty groundbreaking work in this area. He's spoken to the people who make the decisions on when, if ever, our most infamous criminals are allowed back into society. But first, let's start with the basics. Who gets life? Okay, so a life sentence is imposed usually for murder. It's mandatory for murder and it's discretionary for some other offences like rape or um, some sexual offences and manslaughter. But the vast majority of lifers in Ireland are murderers because it's mandatory and we don't tend to impose maximum sentences for other offences. So for somebody who's, who's committed murder, they're going to be sentenced automatically to life. They'll go to prison and they'll spend seven years um, in prison without any review. And then after seven years, they'll be eligible for review by the parole board. At that point, um, you know, a process begins whereby the person is, you know, under, I suppose, some kind of level of scrutiny by the parole board with a view to whether they're suitable for release. In actual fact, in Ireland, you know, you're not really eligible for release at seven years. It's going to be much later in the sentence that you will be released. So in the 70s, you would have been released at seven years. In fact, at one point in the 70s, somebody was released after serving three and a half years. But, say, since the parole board was established in 2001, life sentences can expect to serve somewhere between 15 to 22 years, 22 being the maximum uh, like average in, in, uh, that we've had in the year in 2012 was 22. At the moment, it's down to 20 in 2014. So since the 70s, uh, it's been around seven years. Uh, it went up in the 80s. It's been kind of increased mental increases over a period of time which means that uh, people are serving longer in prison but it's not really clear why people are serving longer in prison. The history of life sentencing in Ireland has to start with the abolition of the death penalty. 
From the end of the civil war in 1923 up until 1954, 35 people were executed in Ireland, the vast majority for murder. About the same number were sentenced to die, but had their sentences commuted. In 1953, the last person was executed, but the death penalty remained on the statute books for another decade. After that, the crimes which attracted capital punishment were narrowed to treason, certain military offences, and the murder of the president, guardy, prison officers, and certain government officials. Several people did receive death sentences for such crimes, but all were commuted to 40 years in prison by the president acting under their constitutional powers. The death sentence was finally taken off the statute books in 1990 and banned by the Constitution in 2001. So, in practical terms, after World War II, life sentences were for the most part the heaviest sentence a judge was going to hand down. Now is probably a good time to explain the difference between a life sentence and life in prison. Life in prison is simple. You go to prison and sometime later you die in prison. But in Ireland we have life sentences, which are different. Your sentence lasts all your life, but that time might not be spent in prison. You might get released, but you are still under the terms of the sentence for the rest of your life. Therefore, it's a life sentence. We'll get back to that in a bit. Now, none of that means that people don't spend the rest of their lives in prison. Here's Dermot. It can. Life can mean life. Um, you know, in most countries in Europe, uh, life can't mean life. Or there are some countries who have a limit, very limited value. But you know, there must be always be a potential for review and potential for release. And that exists in Ireland. But it is the case that people can serve life sentences for the remainder of their lives. Um, you know, in terms of people I've interviewed, a lot of people, you know, some interviewees would have said, um, you know, there's some people who should never be released. And, you know, that often could be related to their dangerousness and the likelihood of them committing a fairly serious offence. Um, but, you know, that's problematic in a sense because, you know, for the person subject to the sentence, of course, they have to have the legitimate expectation of release at some point. Uh, but, you know, it's also difficult to manage an ageing prison population. So people who are, you know, in their 60s and 70s aren't really suited to a prison environment for medical reasons. And, uh, well, that might, people might say, well, you know, who cares about the medical reasons of a lifer, but you could say that, but from a prison management point of view, it's very difficult also. So, you know, you have people who have uh, age-related illnesses which aren't really suited or not certainly going to be reduced in the prison environment, you know. Until a certain Mr Dwyer began his sentence earlier this year, Ireland's most famous lifer was probably Malcolm MacArthur. His story is fairly well known, but for those who might not remember it, MacArthur was convicted of the murder of a young nurse, Bridie Gargan, in 1982. He was also strongly suspected of killing farmer Donald Dunn, but never stood trial on that charge. He was sentenced to life and became one of the country's longest serving prisoners. Such was his notoriety that Justice Minister after Justice Minister refused to release him. That was until Alan Shatter signed off on a programme of release that saw him finally walk free in 2012. The story is actually much more interesting and bizarre than I've told you, but you'll have to go to Wikipedia for the bits I've skipped. I think Malcolm MacArthur was, you know, you people would have described him as a political prisoner, really. Um, you know, I would have interviewed people who would have dealt with him, you know, before the parole board there was a sentence review group and they would have, you know, one particular guy said that, you know, he, you know there was an issue uh, in relation to his release. But, you know, as people age, it's the ageing process, you know, ageing out of crime and uh, people eventually stop, you know, engaging in that type of thing. I said earlier that we don't have life imprisonment in Ireland, we have life sentences. 
it's a pretty big distinction, especially for that guy who got out after three and a half years. By the way, we really tried to find out more about that case, but came up short. If anyone has any info, please get in touch at this side of the law podcast at gmail.com. The term life sentence is actually entirely accurate. A person may be released after 20 years, but they are released under something called permanent temporary release. That seemingly oxymoronic phrase means that any time in that person's life, they can be brought back to prison, even for the most minor infractions. In fact, it doesn't even have to be a crime. Lifers are given permanent temporary release on condition that they obey certain conditions, such as keeping a curfew or keeping off the drink. If they break these conditions, they can be sent back to prison to resume their sentence. Here's Dermot again. What was revealed to me was quite surprising, actually, because the rate of recall really related... There was a significant amount of re-offending there, which I myself found to be um, unusual because I wouldn't have thought it would have been as significant as it was. The number of recalls are small, but the number of releases are very small also. So it was significant in terms of the numbers that you're, you're actually dealing with. There were individuals who had re-offended who had been recalled. You know, the process around that is a little bit unclear to me. Um, you know, there is a process there, but how what exactly happens, I'm not 100% sure myself, but there are others who are recalled for things like, um, you know, there's one example of where somebody was recalled for uh, being drunk, you know, to be of sober habits, and uh, the person was drunk in a public place, he was picked up by the guards, He they found out he was on temporary release, he was returned to prison, he spent another couple of years in prison for that infraction, and... Um, you know, the reality is if you're out on temporary release as serving a life sentence um, and you are trying to live a normal life as everyone else is, the likelihood of you being pub- drunk in a public place might be, at some point in your life, be likely. And, uh, you know, the consequences for that license prisoner is very severe in a way it wouldn't be for just a regular human being who's kind of living their life. And while that might be understandable to place constraints in their behaviour, especially if there's an alcohol issue or a drug abuse issue with the individual, as is often the case, um, you know, it does seem a little bit extreme. So let's say someone is serving a life sentence. They've done the first seven years and it's time to take a look at them and see if they can be released. Their first port of call is the parole board. What happens is that the minister refers the case to the parole board and the parole board is just advisory. It's there appointed by the minister and it has no real statutory role and it is there to recommend to the minister what the outcome might be. So... Uh, they are they review the cases and they have a big report you know a big it's called a review dossier and that includes a lot of different reports from a lot of different agencies and might include a risk assessment and why from the probation service and most likely will and psychology service it will re- provide a report from the guards from the governor of the prison you know from any psychologists involved and they'll make a recommendation on that basis you know after seven years they're not likely to recommend release they're going to recommend some management of their sentence engage further rehabilitative services or or whatnot, there could be those different things and eventually the person will transition each three year review will transition towards release you know the last step will probably be to a step down facility so like an open facility and then with a view to releasing them on full temporary release it's called. Victims families also can weigh in on the decision making but they're not they're not solicited to so victim families are contacted once the person becomes eligible for release and um, 
at that point they can make a representation. Again, like in the Irish system, it's very informal. So that means that we're unclear as to what role a victim has in the process, or if any. And um, you know, from what I'm aware of, that victims do tend to write in. You know, they won't often, you know, won't necessarily mean that they're advocating a longer sentence. But one of the big issues is that they are informed of. Um, the point of release at seven years and so they are aware then that the person might be subject to release but of course the reality is you know and the time served that I've kind of um, generated from my own research indicates that they're not going to be released for another 13 years at the moment and so the victim actually is in the position where they might view the person as being released but actually it's going to be a long way away and that can have I would think a negative impact on their life and you know, their expectation of the system, and I think that's probably something that needs to be addressed. This uh, informality seems to be quite systemic in terms of how the board is even appointed. Like these are these are political point, like these are aren't tendered appointments. Uh, am I right to say that? I think up to now they haven't been, um, and pro board members would be quite open about at least you know a cohort of pro board members would be open about their appointment being true. Um, our political connection and political patronage at some level. So there are some members who are always part of the pro board, like the head of the operations service and a representative from the Department of Justice, and there are some community representatives, and those people are appointed by the minister, I suppose, at, at his or her discretion. And uh, I think actually they will, I think this summer they're going to do it through the kind of public process. As far as I'm aware, I think that's what's the, the, I think there's an implication from a, on another decision in relation to another body that it will mean that they will go through the normal process uh, of public appointments. So that will change. No, normally, they're um, they're kind of former guards, are they? Uh, probation officers, some some people who would be some way involved in the justice system. Sometimes, I mean, the there has been a tendency to appoint people who have worked in criminal justice previously, retirees of the guards or you know, a whole range of different agencies um, or prison governor or whatnot, but it's very much kind of, you know, you don't really know why the person will be appointed. And there's some people who are totally unconnected, somebody who's working in a business or a teacher or, um, you know, you don't really know what they are expected to represent. Um, and a lot of them would have said, even the ones working in justice would have said, you know, I didn't know anything about parole until I got the job and I tried to figure it out when I got there and they don't receive training really officially and they're not really clear sometimes on their role and it's something that they would actually be open about themselves in terms of saying, look, I didn't really know what I was doing when I started and I had to learn it um, on the hoof, you know. And there's no training provided, am I right in saying that? As far as I'm aware, there's no specific training, especially on things like, which I think are really important, things like risk assessment. You know, risk assessment is something that is, you know, it's an actuarial tool that you have to be able to understand and use. And from my research, I think there are issues about um, how that's integrated into the process and in what way and whether the pro board are really engaging in a valid method of risk assessment. I think you touched on it there as well. Um, there, it, I think some of your interviewees conceded that they would be quite conservative and, and risk-averse when making decisions. Yeah, and of course, I think a lot of parole boards realistically would be conservative. You're looking at releasing a murderer and you certainly don't want to make a mistake. And uh, in that kind of environment, 
you know, it's likely that the person will take a conservative view and the group will take a conservative approach. I mean, the difficulty with that is that you can be too conservative and then not release people who really should be, should have been released. And um, while releasing life sentence prisoners is probably always going to be unpopular, you know, releasing murderers is not something that uh, the public is not going to be too, you know, enamoured with ever. But, you know, that's not the role of the board to kind of mediate that process. It's a separate issue, really. And, uh, you know, when they're considering different cases, they need to, I suppose, in some ways, be constrained by the rules. And uh, at the moment, there are no rules. So that allows that drift upwards we've seen over the last kind of couple of decades and things increasing. And, you know, that's largely part of, you know, if you thought about why that might happen, you know, this is just thinking rather than like any facts on that. You know, if you're politically, if it's a political process, you're looking back and saying, well, what was it previously? We'll push it up a little bit, you know, and that's defensible. And uh, if anything does go wrong, and of course it rarely does go wrong because murderers don't tend to murder again. There are very few serial killers in any country and uh, they, while they might re-offend at some small level, uh, the likelihood of repeating a similar crime is very unusual and rare. How did we get this parole board? Well, in the 90s, we had the Sentence Review Group, which fulfilled pretty much the same function and also had the same problems. Here's a quote taken from Dermot's research from a former member of the Sentence Review Group. You speak of a process. I discern no process. We went to prisons. We spoke to prisoners who had applied to have their sentence reviewed, which was a misnomer, of course. Our task was to advise the minister on the administration of their sentence, applicable to that one individual, which was what we did. Advice, or rather recommendations, which the minister and his or her officials could follow or reject. I remain of the opinion that the department did whatever it had always intended to do, and the setting up of the review group was a sop. The sentence review group muddled along until the end of the decade, until two controversies hit, which led to the introduction of the parole board we have today. The first of those controversies will become known as the Shady Affair. Mr Justice Cyril Kelly and his wife Patricia left their home shortly after 8 o'clock this morning to bring their young children to school. But it wasn't just another ordinary day in the life of a High Court judge. This was D-Day in a fast-track career that brought him to the High Court bench last November. Three hours later, amid intense speculation that his letter of resignation was at Oris and Uchtheron, a courier from the Defence Forces arrived at the judge's home. Shortly afterwards, Judge Kelly and his wife returned. As media gathered and his resignation was confirmed in political circles, he prepared to face the cameras and make his first public statement on the Sheedy affair. I wish to make clear that the decision I made in that case was one that I considered just. I alone had judicial responsibility and I made my decision without any inappropriate influence or improper motive. Philip Sheedy was an architect who caused the death of Anne Ryan in 1996 while he was drink driving. He was later jailed for four years. A short time into his sentence, acquaintances of Sheedy raised the case with Supreme Court Judge Hugh O'Flaherty while the judge was walking his dog on the beach. O'Flaherty had the case listed before another judge for a review, and as a result, Sheedy was released having served a year of the four-year term. And then it was this case. Nancy Nolan's son and five daughters left the Central Criminal Court today, still wondering why a man their mother had taught and been kind to had bludgeoned her to death with a lump hammer. Thomas Murray admitted killing the 80-year-old retired national school teacher, but there was no motive for the murder. Thomas Murray was just 17 when he stabbed an elderly man to death in the Galway village for no obvious reason. He received a life sentence. 
1998, he was granted temporary release, but lost it after being convicted of indecent exposure. And in 2001, he was again on day release, when he murdered an 80-year-old woman with a lump hammer. Obviously something had to change in the way serious offenders were being assessed for release, but what we got was little more than a new name for the same body. Here's Dermot. The reason why the parole board, it was called the interim parole board uh, in 2001 was established was because, well in my view, was because Thomas Murray who was released killed another person, he was released on a life sentence, he killed another person, there was a report done into it uh, which described what had happened in terms of decision making as disturbing and uh, so the pro board was established at that point, it also coincided with the Sheedy affair, I don't know if you remember that, but um, that was um, you know, involved, the review of sentences by the court and um, kind of the access of an individual to the political and judicial elite that maybe wouldn't happen in other countries and so that kind of Results in the interim pro board. The plan was to make it a statutory board, and they dropped the interim, and we still have this interim, non-interim pro board. And uh, they often talk about reform. The parole board make their recommendations to the minister for justice, and the final word rests with the minister. The minister is free to do exactly as the parole board says, and according to Dermid, they often do just that. But they are also free to completely ignore the board's advice. There is no statutory requirement for the minister to pay any heed to the recommendations. However, there is a law stating that they have to take into account the criteria laid out in the Temporary Release of Prisoners Act 2003. This act states that the minister must take into account various factors when deciding on the release of a lifer, such as the conduct of the person in custody, the risk to society and the seriousness of the offence. However, sometimes the ministers also ignore these criteria and just go with their gut. If you think I'm being unfair in that, have a listen to this comment from an unnamed Minister for Justice who was interviewed by Dermid. I have to say, I didn't, to be honest, pay that much attention to the statutory criteria. I have to say, it was really on my gut feeling. It's a pretty incredible statement. Yeah, <laughs> I would have thought so too. That's why I included it. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose... The reality is that the minister is accepting a recommendation from the parole board, and even though that statement is kind of on a standalone basis is quite stark and you know surprising for someone to reveal, uh, it probably reflects maybe a lot of how people actually make decisions about these types of things in reality. You know, if you look at decision making, the psychology decision making, oftentimes it's based on, you know, a gut instinct and then there is a rationale that's added to it. So, you know, even though it's unusually candid, um and maybe highlights the problem of a lack of formal structure, you know, that maybe a a specific criteria might a more detailed criteria or more kind of constraint, you know, constraint on the decision making would impact on that um, instinct. You know, it's still an understandable, even though maybe not acceptable, response to a kind of a human issue like releasing a murderer. There is also evidence that the thinking of the parole board and the minister are influenced by factors completely out of the prisoner's control. Factors like crime trends and political expediency. So the, the parole board have been open about acknowledging that they want to address in some way through their process broader crime trends and in the annual reports of the parole board the chair has made a number of statements about the rise in gangland violence and um, knife crime and all that type of thing and wanted to address that in 
being able that taking that into account and you know that's really problematic because if you think about it somebody in 2012 he was released after 22 years if you go back to when that person was sentenced it would be 1990 and in 1990 there wasn't a gangland problem so the person's been detained on the basis of a crime trend which has occurred after he was put into prison for which he has no responsibility and it doesn't really seem like an appropriate factor to take into account you know it's an issue of concern the rise in lethal violence whether it should be mediated into a decision about to release somebody who committed a crime in 1990 which wasn't a gangland crime is really questionable mm. so it's a problem definitely I'm not sure if you if, 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 if touched on this in your research but do like is there any evidence that the parole board takes the notoriety of the offender into account uh, all lifers have been most lifers have been subject to a mandatory life sentence for murder and so they've attracted attracted some level of notoriety at the outset when they're convicted and not always but a lot of the time will attract some attention on their release also and um, Malcolm MacArthur being the obvious example for the last 30 years you know he's attracted a lot of attention you know more more than most and um, the result of that in terms of parole board members and what they acknowledge explicitly is that you know making recommendations of somebody who is in a sense um, you know a political issue you know because of their notoriety and the public uh, nature of the minister's decision um, is problematic for them and they have openly acknowledged that sometimes they don't make a recommendation or they might ameliorate the recommendation in those kind of instances which is obviously of concern because you know the celebrity status that you have is really irrelevant to how you should be processed um, in my view Um, but it is understandable if you have a very public and political process you know ministers that I've interviewed say like I am a politician you know you have to make decisions you know, on that basis. And of course, politicians are interested in being re-elected, most of all. Um, and just, uh, you said that the, the Pro Board makes recommendations. So these are recommendations, not decisions. So the minister is free to reject their recommendations. Exactly. So the minister decides ultimately. He most often accepts the recommendations of the Pro Board. But, you know, my research would indicate that Pro Board members are very aware of the minister and his perspective or her perspective and uh, will often adapt their recommendations on that basis. So even though there's a high acceptance rate of recommendations, it really depends on what's being recommended and if you're recommending something that you know the person is going to accept, then it's not really a very good barometer of success. So we had a chance to change things in the new parole board in 2001, but we seem to have wasted that chance. So maybe the change is going to come from the outside, say from someone like the European Court of Human Rights, or maybe not. Um, there was a decision in favour of our, our in the Irish system, if you want, but many would have predicted it would have been against the mechanism that we have in Ireland, and uh, you know because the system in Ireland is so kind of chaotic and so discretionary and informal, but it still complies with the kind of the basic rules of the European Court, and that's a problem because, as I see it anyway, because a lot of the criticism of lifers and the life sentence prisoner, you know, kind of administration of that process would have relied on the argument that it would, might not be compliant with the ECHR. Now it turns out from these decisions that it is compliant, so the kind of impetus for reforming the system has kind of been removed, and you know politicians who haven't really been inclined to reform it anyway are kind of, I would say, just going to continue on as is, until something happens that 
you know, put it into public focus again, you know. Throughout this episode, we've been talking about life sentences from a fairly academic point of view. But it's important to remember that in the vast majority of cases, these prisoners have committed the ultimate crime. They've taken a life and deprived a parent, sibling, child or partner of a loved one. Any consideration of the issue must take this into account. Uh, I lost my sister Sharon in 2000, Christmas Day 2008. Uh, Sharon and her two daughters, Nadia and Zara, were murdered by Brian Hennessy in Wangup on Christmas morning. That's John Whelan. He's the chairman of Advocates for Victims of Homicide, or ADVIC. And um, <clears throat> after going through the criminal justice system and coming out the other end of it and uh, seeing how, uh, how broken it is, uh, I felt uh, I couldn't uh, just stand idly by and not try and, and change the system for other families that unfortunately will be coming behind us and have done in, 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 those, uh, in those, those years since 2008. Like Dermot, John wants to see a change in our life sentencing regime. The ad hoc and opaque nature of the system is not only a challenge for prisoners, it's also incredibly tough for victims' families to hear that their loved one's killer could be released after just seven years, even if that's highly unlikely. We're looking for the Irish government to adopt the British system, the tariff system, where uh, a judge can hand down uh, a starting tariff of whether it's 15, 25, 30 years, or what's known as a whole life order, uh, to perpetrators of murder. It's, uh, it's, it's, for us, it's a fairer system, because the way it is at the moment, uh, like you said, life does not mean life. Life can mean anything from seven years up to the average at the moment, which is about 17 years. But bear in mind, uh, a a murderer can go look for parole after seven years, and in the law, uh, technically could be granted his freedom after seven years. So there is a minimum sentence in place already of seven years for murder in this country, and we're saying that goes nowhere near uh, justice for families that have lost loved ones to murder and homicide. And I suppose it's quite distressing to know that, you know, even for, for the worst of the worst, that they are getting having their sentence reviewed after such a short period of time. Well, that's it. I mean, uh, you know, families, and like, we're, we're going through it now because um, I think around around this time next year or a little earlier, um, Brian Hennessy is uh, liable or eligible to look for parole. Now, to try and explain to someone that's not gone through this, the, the, the stress that that brings on a family, and, you know, after seven years, you're, you're, you're trying to move on in your life a little bit and uh, trying to, to, to get the pieces back together. And, you know, the, the idea that there's, there's a, a very, well, it's a, it's a small possibility, but it's still a possibility. And the fact that he's entitled to do it after such a short period of time causes huge stress and anxiety to family that families that have already been through the mill. And because the state, uh, this is the way the state has it set, set up, that, you know, the, the state is adding to families stress. And um, as far as we can see, there's, there's no political will to, to change that. We're not being listened to, and that's quite frustrating. In the parole board and the way that's set up, I understand victim families don't have representation on the parole board, although they can write to it. Is this something that, that your group has a view on? Absolutely. Well, well first of all, we, we think there should be, there should be no parole um, until the perpetrator has served those uh, starting tariffs that we've set out, as is the case in the UK, as is in the case in uh, in Australia, uh, which recent 
uh, cases that have made, made the news in the last two or three years uh, around uh, Catherine Going and Jill Maher as examples in those cases where, you know, the, the perpetrators in those cases got, I think it was around 35 and 38 years, that they have to serve those sentences before they're entitled to parole. Now, we think that should be the case here in Ireland as well. But when it comes to the parole board, yeah, you're right. We can. The only input we have is a written submission to that parole board. Um, spaces came up on the parole board, I think about two years ago, and ADVIC um, put a, a suggestion forward that someone from our organisation should be on that parole board. But uh, we didn't even get an answer to that question. Have you had any dealings with the Department of Justice, like with, with, with Minister Satter or Minister Fitzgerald? We... Yeah, we we met with Minister Fitzgerald. I think it was around February this year, where um, she listened carefully to what we were uh, asking for, uh, and, and what our um, our preference would be when it comes to sentencing. But I think in in a recent answer to a dog question, uh, she has no intention of of changing the the um, the sentence when it comes to life sentences in in Ireland when it comes to murder and manslaughter. You obviously believe that there's certain murderers out there who should be serving an actual life um, sentence. I mean, yeah. would you ever see, would you ever be okay seeing Brian Hennessy being released, you know, if he had rehabilitated, said sorry, you know, kicked yeah. all those boxes? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, way, I, the way I look at it, I, I think rehabilitation does play a role in this. But what, what is it? What is rehabilitation? Um, we believe that re, re, yeah, rehabilitation is, is there, sh- should be part of this. But, you know, we, we also think that uh, appropriate sentences should be served uh, first. We think justice should be served first before any rehabilitation uh, comes into the equation. Um, I don't know what that rehabilitation consists of. How, how is it uh, put in place in prisons? What does it consist of? What do they have to do? Who decides when someone is rehabilitated or not? Um, these people, remember, the, you know, they have uh, made a deliberate decision to take another human being's life. You know, so first of all, they must pay the price for that. And at the moment, society and uh, the state says that that is a minimum of seven years. And we're saying that goes nowhere near the uh, the the, um, the sentencing that should be there for such uh, an awful crime. Life is the most precious thing you have. And when someone makes a conscious decision to end that life, a choice, they have made a choice to end someone else's life, our lives in our case, you know. And we, we just feel, and the families who, who we represent, which is like there's over 300 in our group, you know, we all feel that we have been let down by the state, that we cannot understand why this is not a bigger issue uh, than, than, it, than, than it is. It should be, because God forbid it could be anyone tomorrow. And, and you know, we, we don't want that to happen. We, we want a stronger uh, uh, message to go out there for, for, for people who have, who have to have taken, um, deliberately taken other person's life. So, what chance of reform? Here's Thurman again. The last Minister for Justice, Alan Shatter, you know, he did seem actually committed to reform, and I interviewed him, and he was committed to it. I think there was potential for reform there, but that seems to have lost any momentum. I am not aware of any draft bill in process at the moment, and um, 
you know, as I said, the European Court of Human Rights decision has kind of taken away from maybe some of that potential movement. You know, I think the purpose of my research is to put in the public domain information that brings to light stuff, like things that are happening in the system that maybe people didn't know publicly previously, as I certainly didn't, you know, until I started looking at the process. So the purpose of that, my own research is to place in the public domain information for public debate and, um, you know, whether that results in anything, I don't know. But at the moment, I would say that there isn't a huge drive towards reforming the parole process and I feel in these kind of situations that you know particularly in criminal justice in Ireland where everything is maybe not done in a strategic way but in a very ad hoc way you know in terms of policy uh, I think it won't fall subject to reform until um, it's brought into a public attention in a, probably in a negative way uh, to result in any kind of transition towards a formal system but maybe a bill will be published tomorrow and I'll be wrong and I would be happy to be wrong, you know. As John pointed out, Minister for Justice Francis Fitzgerald has already told the doll that I have no plans at present to amend the law to provide for a specific minimum term of imprisonment for murder. In terms of other reforms, we asked the Department of Justice and Equality to set out their position regarding the parole board. As spokesperson said, there are plans in place to put the parole board on a statutory footing and that Work is underway on the preparation of a general scheme and would be submitted to government for consideration in due course. As regards how parole board members are appointed, the department said Currently, individuals are appointed by the minister on foot of their experience and expertise, which is invaluable to the work of the board. The department said there are no requirements for such positions to be advertised publicly, and that a previously appointed parole board member will be reappointed if the minister is happy with their performance. As it happens, the terms of four members of the board expire this month. The department says that the minister intends to reappoint all of them. And last week saw the publication of the general scheme of a new criminal justice bill, which among other measures will grant victims the right to be informed of prisoners' releases, escapes and parole applications. So that's where we'll have to leave it for now. Thanks for tuning in to episode 2 of This Side of the Law, which was edited and produced by Declan Conlon and hosted by me, Connor Gallagher. We hope we've given you some things to think about. We'll be posting some material about life sentences on our Facebook page, including links to Dermot Griffin's very readable and interesting research in the area. We hope to see you back here soon.